and good morning. Oh, geez, not morning. Oh, my goodness. A little late. <laughs> a little late. Uh, good afternoon. Um, this is your host, uh, Samaj McDowell, here the Geopolitical Pivot slash George Kennan Group. I'm here with good old Wayne Wright, who's just out of it. His cat kept him up. Cats. Oh, cats. Two. Two. Yeah. I don't know why he would do it to himself. Um, but he did that, and we have our good old analyst here, Brian Jones, the good one. How are you, Brian? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back, guys. No, absolutely. So um, just a few pointers before we allow – this is practically going to be Brian Jones's uh, episode today. Uh, I'm too tired. When you're too tired, Brian Jones is very chippy today. And this is his area. This is area of focus. Yeah. Um, we're talking about South Korea. Um, but before we talk about that, I wanted to give a few announcements. It's that the Geopolitical Pivot is finally launching um, our very own YouTube uh, channel where a lot of the content that we'll put here on our podcast will be uploaded on YouTube, but with some more uh, actual visualizations um, so that can kind of show you um, where we are kind of talking about in our geographic focuses. Uh, as well as information, data, etc. So that is actually launching between today and Monday. That's right. Um, our good old Brian, the other Brian, Ecuadorian, Ecuadorian Spice Brian. Yes, <laughs> he is. Um, he, he'll be fine. He is editing the videos and making sure that the content is correct and it's good and it's for your consumption. Um, in addition to that, uh, we are going to be launching a very unique yet necessary initiative called Athon Enterprises, um, dealing with national security threat assessments, um, as well as geopolitical monitoring and data analytics here in Washington, D.C., um, looking to provide new breath, essentially, uh, to the national security conversation, um, providing advice to policymakers, advisors, as well as our overall global audience, uh, we're nearing 7,000 uh, downloads. That's just That in itself over the span of two years is just an amazing accomplishment to have. And so we are very thankful for everybody that tunes in um, to listen to our shenanigans and conversations on Taco Bell two-piece combos. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, but overall, you know, Aethon Enterprises will be here to uh, not just advocate for better national security protocol, but to provide actual data-driven products, uh, politically unbiased products, um, to really show the world as it is, not how we want it to be. Uh, but in a sense, we're also advocating for the principles of uh, Western civilization, um, Jerusalem, Greece, Rome, um, some cases here, Washington, D.C., um, Industrial Revolutions, etc., and how that process, uh, since the founding of the Roman Republic, gave birth to essentially the world in which that we live in today. Um, but nonetheless, uh, Athon Enterprises is definitely going to be up and running soon. Uh, we're getting our social media platforms established, uh, making our connections and networks. Uh, and from there, um, we are going to push it over to good old Brian Jones as he talks about the Korean Peninsula. Brian Jones, all yours. Uh, thanks so much. So, you know, it's been kind of, as you know, it's been a busy week in the headlines all over the place, but Korea in particular, you know, sometimes it's more overlooked until we're about to get news and then cases <laughs> everywhere. 
But in this case, you know, we have a new situation developing on the Korean Peninsula. All right. So for additional context, you know, the South Korean elections just happened. The, the Moon administration's gone. They're out. And the oncoming Yoon administration is in. Now, the difference between that is that, you know, the Moon administration was much more cooperative, much more sympathetic, much more, I guess, you know, willing to, I guess, bend, bend around a little in the face of North Korea, you know, mm -hmm. wanting to try and use more economic means, more social means, cultural means to try and affect change. Uh, my personal assessment is that that did not work. And I think that the the nuclear armament development that we've seen both during that time and now supports that. Mm -hmm. And now the oncoming unit administration has a bit more of a more hardliner approach, sticking to more, more military, comp more brinksmanship, more developments in that front. So that's the context that we're in, a new South Korean administration. Now, the DPRK, they did 33 missile tests in the past six months. That's a lot, even for North Korean standards. Wow. So, yes, they're testing a lot. They not only are testing their usual ballistic missiles that can go all the way to, you know, the West Coast of the United States, but they're also testing new missiles for shorter-range things designed mm -hmm. to, you know, move at hypersonic speeds at very shorter distances, you know, maneuver around air defenses, and then deliver a tactical nuclear payload. Which is, you know, a few kilotons instead of the regular larger megatons that we've seen. And do you think this is these tests are a logical extension of the outcome of the South Korean elections, or it's related to something completely different? I think it's kind of tied to both. You know, again, it's part of the the DPRK's internal strategy, its internal Juche ideology of of strength, of mm -hmm. military power. You know, it's been pursuing this for a very long time, and by diversifying its strategic rocket forces and its nuclear capabilities, it's kind of more of a move to diversify the options that Kim has at his hands to essentially pressure the rest of the international community. Now, you know, in this context, you know, we have a situation now where the, you know, the, the response I actually quite liked to these new prov provocational developments, mm -hmm. you know, particularly now that there's words of a upcoming nuclear test that the North Koreans are looking to conduct. And, you know, as you guys know, that's, that's a very large international taboo. They've done it before in nuclear tests. However, you know, not even China is a big supporter of mm -hmm. North Korea doing these sorts of nuclear tests. But I think now was interesting, though. I think North Korea also kind of understands this, that their nuclear program or, like, their testing of nuclear weapons is also even a deterrent to the Chinese as well. Um, if we think about it, if we look at it from a strategic deterrence point of view, um, as you alluded to, uh, one of the first... Actually, you didn't allude to it, but... Uh, <laughs> think about it. I'm take it back. Um, when Kim Il-sung took over. Um, what was first on his list of things to do was a nuclear weapon program. And then we're talking about this is after uh, the Soviet Union had essentially uh, demonstrated their nuclear capabilities. Um, and China made it very clear, at least to Stalin, that China wanted nuclear weapons. Well, so did Kim Il-sung in a way. 
um, the idea to have this uh, this notions of deterrence, especially in the aftermath of the Korean War, was huge. Um, so immediately, what North Korea started to do was to literally send people to Moscow uh, to learn about nuclear physics and um, uh, ballistic missiles and etc. Um, now, when we and it makes sense because the current uh, Kim Kim Jong Un venerates. It's so many Kims. So many. <laughs> um, he venerates, you know, Kim Il Sung. I mean, if we remember when he first took over, he literally attempted to replicate the, the physical presence of his grandfather. Um, then when we're talking about the nuclear weapons. It's interesting that whenever the DPRK initiates a, a nuclear weapons test, it's always during a time of humanitarian crisis um, or the needing of some sort of humanitarian assistance. Um, we saw that, especially during, who was the middle Kim? Uh, Kim Jong-un's father. Kim Jong-il. That one. Uh, <laughs> um, we saw that with his tests. Um, we saw that with a lot of North Korea's provocations, that whenever they are in itself internally having a, a problem of some magnitude, whether it's a famine or any type of internal political um, turmoil, there's always this notion of needing of drastic... Um, heightening of peninsular tensions in order to bring these major powers, whether it's China, Russia, Japan, America, to the table to acquire some sort of financial assistance or humanitarian assistance that just inevitably prolongs the duration of the Kim dynasty. So with these increasing of um, rocket tests, as you said, over the past six months, um, it's just interesting to see North Korean nuclear diplomacy at work. Yes, exactly. You, you really hit it on the head here. You know, the entire Kim family has a long history of using these sorts of developments as a means of essentially extorting the international community for additional benefits. And in this case in particular, with all these missile tests, it's important to note that the, of the internal, what little we do know about the internal situation in North Korea. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously press and investigations and intelligence out of there is very, very rare. But we do know, at least public, what's publicly available, is that COVID's happening. And it's not looking great, that's what they're saying, on even North Korean propaganda. Which means, you know, it's probably exponentially worse in reality. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, that, that's, that's the way I interpret any of these sorts of broadcasts. So, let's see. The, you know, their economy is probably in ruin by this point between sanctions and COVID. You know, because between China's zero, both China and North Korea's zero tolerance policy, internal and external trade has come to like almost a complete stop. Which, as a smaller country, you know, the North Korea needs that to survive. So they're clearly struggling. So I definitely see these tests as an effort to try and extort some money out of the international community. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I it's just interesting to now we have the. Hardline South Korean administration, um, I mean, who basically demonstrated, uh, well, not just demonstrated, but explicitly stated, you know, that enough is enough. Um, but it's interesting that it comes that time that this hardline presidency comes right at a time where, um, I forget who stated, but there was a retired South Korean um, high military official who stated that essentially, the state of South Korea's military um, 
long term wise as it stands, it's not really at the point where it needs to be to fully sustain a potential attack from the North Koreans. Yes, uh, I, I saw that article. I kind of want to get to that. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, but I would like to talk about the response. Oh, yeah, and, absolutely. Yes, yeah, so after these launches and words coming out about the possible nuclear test, I think that the U.S. and South Korea did something really intelligent, really smart. They did a lot of things simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So they did multiple joint exercises, particularly with artillery, you know, both the howitzers, the rocket launchers, you know, the things that would win a war in Korea. Mm -hmm. They did a lot of exercises with those. They did eight response, you know, missile launches mm -hmm. demonstrating their own, you know, deep strike capabilities and did their own fly and did a massive flyover with F F-15s and other strike aircraft to demonstrate and to demonstrate not just South Korea's ability to respond, mm -hmm. but also the U.S.'s willingness to continue supporting them and fight alongside them as well. So I think this was a, you know, it's a very new approach. You know, it's way too early to tell what will happen with this new type of much more aggressive approach. But they did it very well in the fact that they're demonstrating their capabilities and they're also demonstrating their their resolve to work together right. to deter. No, I agree. Um, and then, I mean, aligning that then with the, we're seeing the increasingly um, shifting uh, Japanese military posturing, um, where whether that's against China itself, but also in some way, um, it's a, a containment strategy really for North Korea as well, who constantly has been seen through their their uh, ballistic missile testings. They like to shoot rockets and missiles into the Sea of Japan. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the, the Japan-Korea relation is a super complicated one. You know, yeah. they, they've, they have a rival, a rivalry is not the right word. A blood feud? That's, that's the best description. <laughs> but, I mean, it dates back centuries. You know, yeah. even Sea of Japan versus EC, that's mm. a major point of contention, you know, right. because... You know, they hate a lot of times they, they hate each other. Mm -hmm. But yes, you know, it's kind of more of a line sense of necessity of right. times, you know, with the U.S. as a mediator. Mm -hmm. So that'll be interesting to keep track on. But I would like to kind of circle back to the point that you made about the, the readiness of South Korea. And I, I kind of saw that article as well. I think it was like a def, retired deputy defense minister mm -hmm. or someone, someone of that sort of stature. And one of the things he was basically saying is that turnover rate is super high in the South Korean military. Readiness and training is very low. You know, ammunition stocks are borderline. A lot of their ammunition and supply stocks are depleted. And, you know, generally a poor lack of discipline. And, you know, that's not good, particularly with, <laughs> particularly with you know, in North Korea. You know, they, they have their own supply and discipline issue and corruption discipline issues yes they do but they are still fanatically fanatically hating the west and the u.s and you know have been raised on 70 years of propaganda about glorious reunification and killing a bunch of capitalists so you know that's that's not great in that context and one of the things that i saw there is that they're trying to get you know the United States, particularly, you know, professional NCO Corps, mm -hmm. to try and get, get some of those training exercises together to start training up that capability. 
That's what I heard about as well. And I mean, it's but even then, they were like, it could take potentially five years for the South Korean military to get to some degree of military readiness that in the event of a North Korean assault, however that may be, uh, which most likely would be an artillery bombardment on Seoul to the point where it's just completely level. Um, it's just the fact that the time duration, well, projected time duration is five years, should be a demonstration of, well, like, hey, this is a serious problem. Uh, we're even seeing this in a lot of reports. Um, there's a publication called Breaking Defense. Um, they post a lot of up-to-date information on American military readiness. And they've even stated that the current state of our Navy um, is not in the position, especially to go against a power um, such as China that utilizes diesel um, submarines. Uh, now, granted, a lot of North Korea, or if not all North Korea submarines are completely outdated, but uh, we alluded to in a particular podcast where I stated that my fear is not necessarily the capabilities of how blue, how ocean going, let's say, uh, China's Navy is. It's my fear is the cap the success capabilities of China's ships being able to operate as launching platforms for long range strategic assaults. It's not a matter to, to me. It's not a matter of can they get an aircraft carrier from the first island chain to the third island chain up the coast of Hawaii. No, my fear is can they get a diesel or a nuclear power submarine into the second island chain and then launch a ballistic missile from the second island chain to the American homeland or to a strategic position. Same thing can go for North Korea. They've constantly they're following the Chinese model of prioritizing missile development per se, rather than actual naval uh, vessel development, well, one, they're striking cash. But two, ideally, their, their, their goal is access denial. With access denial, I don't need a nuclear-powered submarine to deny you access. I just need enough, uh, let's say, missile structures, tactical, uh, medium range, theater range, uh, intermediate, uh, ICBM, um, to keep you away from the battlefield so then I can establish their strategic spaces to then achieve my, my, my political end goal, as Clausewitz would state that war is. Um, that, I think, is the strategy that North Korea is playing. So by putting all of their money into missiles, whether that's multiple launching rocket systems, MLRSs based off of structures that they've gotten from the Mao era or even they've gotten from the Stalin Khrushchev era rather than creating new designs that just build off the old designs. Um, now we see that with the Scud B and the Scud C missiles that they utilize primarily for the main bodies of their ballistic missiles. Um, that's a problem. Now, granted, Japan has taught as touted this notion of, well, we may have to go nuclear. And we know with Japan's technological capabilities, Japan most likely can get a nuclear weapon like a month. South Korea can get a nuclear weapon in a month. That is true. And they've also... Oh, the only thing they don't have is the nuclear material. That's it. Yes, but they. I, I have a feeling, particularly given their, their standing in the economic community, they can get that pretty quickly. They and they quickly. have... And now, now they have the political... 
impetus, the political push right. to actually do so. With the you know the Moon administration, nuclearizing was a non-starter. Right. You know, they they were very much a fan of the nuclear umbrella. With the United States, they took that. South Korea, on the other hand, uh, with the new Yoon administration, is now pushing for tactical nuclear weapons in their own hands and possibly a dip deployment of you know tactical nukes from the U.S. side as well to essentially nuclearize their, their side of the peninsula. So it's definitely a different time, and nuclearization of the Pacific is a very interesting concept that's coming up, and we'll probably have some pretty adverse reactions from both North Korea and China. What do you think, um, let's say, this impending nuclear test from North Korea, what do you think the Chinese response be? The Japanese response, South Korean response, the Russian response, uh, American response. Yes, I mean, that's a great question. You know, with the, the Chinese, you know, they have a very interesting relationship with North Korea. You know, they're basically, a, they're friendly to China. They're not a Chinese puppet. Let's be very clear about that. Right. You know, they, they still have their disagreements and they, and you know, Kim definitely has his own objectives in mind and oftentimes uses the material and numerical superiority of the Chinese for his own mm -hmm. objectives. So, you know, I think that a condemnation, maybe with a few under-the-table diplomatic suggestions, hey, please don't do that again. Mm -hmm. if, we'll, if you don't do that again, we'll give you some money. I, I feel like that's something the Chinese would do because, you know, their, their main point is to keep American... At, American influence away from that border because you know the North Korean border is only a few a few hundred miles a few hundred kilometers from Beijing itself very true and literally right next to some of its some of China's most critical infrastructure you know the Shenyang region some of that so they have a very vested interest to seeing you know to seeing the North Korean regime succeed and to continue to survive and more importantly for South Koreans in American not getting anywhere close to that border. So they're probably going to remain supportive. You know, the South Koreans, the Japanese, the United States, that's going to be a completely different story. Yeah, no, I'm definitely um, in agreement for that. And it's just, it's, it's just really interesting that North Korea is able to employ essentially the same type of nuclear diplomacy strategy, and it works every single time. <laughs> um, doesn't matter the administration, doesn't matter the current climate, doesn't matter. The North Korea understands their coercive advantage, um, especially when they don't have to deal with an internal public opinion shifts. Um, they can funnel billions and billions of dollars into these missile programs and not really have any type of societal ramifications, um, simply since the fact that they've starved their people to the point of not having enough energy to literally storm Pyongyang, let alone try to voice an opinion. I mean, if you take away people's food over generations and they're so malnourished that their IQ levels have dropped since the Korean War, um, and that's been scientifically proven, um, Clearly, you don't have a society that has the will to essentially speak up, let alone resist on their current conditions. And they're going through, but not only just another famine now, but also their COVID outbreaks. 
Meanwhile, Pyongyang is still seemingly thriving in the, the, the at least on the surface point of view. Um, but what's interesting to note is that even in South Korea, I saw a video last year or so, it was in a South Korean airport, and a person came up to just a random Korean, and it was like, oh, you know, the Kim Dynasty, they're launching another missile. Mind you, the missile launch is on the TV behind the Koreans. They go, so what do you think? And they're just like, eh. If they do it, then they do it. Um, so if you have an opinion on that, or even you, Wing right, it's just like, oh, well, how does that now play where potentially there are people in the South Korean population that are so over the schism that they're like, not only don't we want North Korea, a unified peninsula per se, but we don't care as much about their their missile testing. They've done it so many times now that it's part of our daily lives. You know, like what is that is that a political consequence potentially where that could get in the way of peninsular conversations? I, I just want to say this before Brian answers that directly. When I look at Korea and the situation between North and South, I always say, well what what do the regimes love? What does the Kim family want above all else? Mm-hmm. They want to survive and continue to reap the benefits of leading that country. And since they don't rule with the consent of the governed, they have to be very careful about what they do. They might threaten to launch nuclear weapons at South Korea, but they will, I strongly suspect they won't do it. Because the minute they launch those weapons or they launch artillery barrage across the parallel, whatever the hell, they are going to be met with a shitstorm that no one will believe from both us and the South Koreans and maybe other people as well. The Kim family wants to retain power. They don't want to die in a nuclear holocaust. So they'll they'll peacock and posture, but in terms of actually releasing it, the odds are very slim they're going to release a nuclear weapon or even an artillery barrage. Yes, and you know I I kind of agree with that because you know the current calculation is this. You know, the, despite the readiness problems with the South Koreans and, you know, some of the more minimal posturing, more minimal security presence of the U.S., the fact remains that, you know, the North Koreans remain vastly outgunned by the joint presence in the South Southern Peninsula. They, fought, they try to fire on a major populated center. First off, you know, between logistics problems, corruption, Aging, you know, their artillery barrages themselves aren't going to be effective, and that doesn't even take into account, you know, our own striking capability when we start knocking off their artillery launchers, their battery command centers, their battery resupply convoys. So, you know, that, you know, the damage can be limited there as of right now. And, you know, the North Korean doctrine has very much shifted since, you know, they're flat broke. They don't have the money to maintain a big, modern armored fleets, you know, of tanks and APCs and this, that, and the other. They don't have the money for it anymore. They watched the Iraq war very closely and have been trying to shift to a more, you know, Maoist people's war inspired by both the, the civil war in China and the insurgency in Iraq. They want, you know, basically every, every citizen to be fanatically loyal and go to the go to the hills, go to the mountains, go to the caves, and then just fight out and bleed any oncoming force. Right. But as you, as you mentioned, they're so weakened now, and they're so unbelievably broke mm-hmm. 
that they don't even have the money or the will or the strength to do that. So right now, there is, I, I think the, that Kim acknowledges this himself, or else he would have already bombed Seoul. He, he knows that the second he tries to attack, he will die. And that's not good. And, you know, I don't think he'll give up his nukes either, because he feels like if he gives away his nukes, he watched what happened to Saddam and Gaddafi. He feels like he gives those up, he'll die. So it's kind of a stalemate in that situation. Right. But, you know, with the Chinese, but, you know, this is on that key factor that they alone cannot stand up to the joint U.S.-South Korean bombardment. The only exception is if that calculus changes. And I think the one situation that does happen is if China throws its weight behind North Korea in, a, in an unprecedented way. Right. No. Well, will, will that happen? We don't know. Exactly. I, right now, the probabilities are slim, but if China wants to take down Taiwan and wants to open an additional front against and divert the U.S.'s attention, mm -hmm. it might give some additional firepower to Kim, which he could use. Absolutely. Um, but then again, we also know, especially with the Chinese, that they value stability and, and money. Um, and unfortunately, for DPRK, long-term-wise, that's not stable money. Um, now, granted, um, with the Chinese, I mean, they obviously they view the North Koreans as a buffer. Nothing more, nothing less. Um, they damn near already dictate and control the North Korean economy in certain strategic industries. Um, but for um, the the North Koreans to continue pushing uh, these uh, nuclear, not just the nuclear tests, but the overall ballistic missile uh, tests, um, that could potentially put a strain on Chinese willingness to potentially bail out the North Koreans. Um, they've already said this a couple years ago, that when Trump was president, actually, uh, China released a statement saying that if North Korea is the one that sparks war with the United States, China will not intervene. If it's the United States that triggers war with North Korea, China will intervene. So already that notion was already set in stone. Um, and I'm pretty sure that China is willing to abide by those words, um, especially now that they're trying to establish their Asia-Pacific security umbrella. Um, it'll be interesting to see how North Korea operates as a, either a screwdriver or a wrench in this Chinese uh, Asia-Pacific grand strategy. Because if China tries to essentially leverage itself as like the quote-unquote the main, let's say, nuclear power in Asia-Pacific, well, Here's North Korea, that is a nuclear power, and they're willing, if need be, and Kim Jong-un has alluded that as well, that it doesn't matter who it is, they will, North Korea will use nuclear weapons to defend itself. Um, what does that then mean for long-term strategic goals of the Chinese? That if it comes to a point where North Korea has to turn to China for a particular situation, China says no, but North Korea has missiles. At this point, it really doesn't matter if China has a two million man active duty military. At that point, it comes down to Wainwright's favorite word, sustainment. 
and North Koreans, even before you get to Pyongyang, it's hella mountainous. That only the North Koreans really know how to operate with all their tunnels and their secret uh, rocket deployment structures. Hmm. China could have all the, the Beidou navigation satellite system satellites all in the world. They want 35 of them in, in orbit. But as we've seen with GPS, especially when it comes to regular warfare against smaller non-state factions or even other nations. Just because you have eyes in the sky doesn't mean that you have 100% guaranteed success rate. So with the North Koreans, they understand this, that they essentially, they have a leash of some capacity with their nuclear erraticism. They're very erratic with their nuclear weapons. China knows this, Russia knows this, Japan knows this, South Korea knows this, America knows this. Hence why none of them really wants to do some sort of an intervention in North Korea. That's true. That's very true. But again, yeah, you know, but that's fascinating concepts of having both the North the North Koreans break not only not only are the enemy number one was South Korea and the US, you know, they describe, you know, the United States the same way that that Iran describes the Great Satan. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's almost like a holy war, cosmic war, holy fear of them in that situation. Right. But right. you know, Basically, one of the few trump cards in the event of a war is that you know he flees to China, just like Kim Kim Il Sung did in you know the Korean War. Right. You know that's that's like his only getaway here. If if anything goes remotely wrong. Right. So by turning on China, I don't see that as particularly likely because by that point he has nowhere to go. He will get killed if he turns if he has both the Chinese and the United States looking at them. That's how like having both the Soviet Union and the United States chasing after one dude. In the sixties, like you won't survive that. Yeah, we saw something similar with Gaddafi, you know, yeah. back in the day. So exactly, well, Kim's only hope is to kind of get into this new emerging bipolar order in the world, and to get in China's good graces, and then use those resources available to his own ends. That's, I think, that's like the only sensible play that he has here. You know, his. His, his family has a lineage of doing so and a history of doing so. Mm-hmm. And, you know, despite his public outbursts, he remains a ruthless autocrat, very talented and skilled in diplomatic manipulation. Yes, he is. So, yes, I, he is. You know, I don't see him cur- turning on the Chinese anytime soon. No. But, you know. No, I, I, turning away from the Chinese would essentially destroy the black market economy of North Korea that the majority, basically the North Koreans that live outside of Pyongyang depend on. Even Pyongyang? They depend on, there's, there is a, um, banking on the Chinese, a Chinese coastal city that's near the border of North Korea that has, uh, it's, Pardon? No, that's the province. Well, it's the Harbin province, essentially, um, that essentially a lot of the North Korean black market trades with, um, so to speak, directly right across the border. Um, And there's, I mean, there's front companies, uh, whether it's banking companies, um, uh, trading companies, agricultural companies, essentially, that are able to, at certain times of the day, smuggling goods into North Korea from the Chinese markets to sell um, and exchange basically back and forth, back and forth. Um, China understands this. Um, China understands that they own the North Korean 
um, economy. These are strategic industries, so their economy. Um, but substantially owns Northland Black Market. Um, Kim Jong-un knows this too. Kim Jong-un understands that he needs access to billions of U.S. dollars in order to sustain his current um, nuclear weapon program, but also to buy the loyalty of his military elites, who did not like him at first. Hence why he purged even his uncle. Um, so that proves to show that there's a lot of instability that's kind of kept um, under wraps in North Korea, but um, we shall see where this goes between the new uh, regime in South Korea and now this potentially upcoming uh, nuclear missile test in North Korea. Um, but we want to stop it there. Um, we're fairly short episode, about 36 minutes. Um, I want to thank everybody for tuning in, listening to what I have to say, and looking forward to the next episode. Yeah, we're looking forward to seeing you guys uh, reading and enjoying the products that Aethon Enterprises produces in the, in the future. So, that's my plug. With that, Godspeed. Much love.